Hey, I'm Dan Telfer. You're watching Improv Nerd with Jimmy Corain. Jimmy, Jimmy Corain, Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Jimmy Corain's an improv nerd. Jimmy Corain's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and we are sponsored by the new book, Improv ABC. Now, do you want to get better at improv but feel stuck in a rut? Does it seem like everyone is having more fun than you? Then stop worrying and start improving. Improv ABC, the A to Z guide to becoming an unstoppable improviser, is a fun, illustrated book by veteran improviser Ben Noble. It's loaded with tips and tricks that are so practical and useful, you can try them out in your show that night. This book is for improvisers of all skill levels, delivering a straightforward approach to fundamentals that will improve your play and get you back to having fun on stage. To learn more, go to improvabc.com. That's improvabc.com. Also, check out my award-winning improv classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, where I teach you before you can be funny, you need to be real, and guess what? You're going to be even funnier. My next Fundamentals of Art of Slow Comedy starts September 23rd. All you have to do to sign up is go to my website, jimmycorain.com. This class is limited to 12 people, and there's only two slots left, so go to my website. Sign up today at jimmycorain.com. And if you're in Chicago and you're looking for a cool hotel to stay at, how about the official hotel of Improv Nerd, Hotel Lincoln? It's not only pet-friendly, it's improviser-friendly as well, and it's located close to everything. And if you mention Improv Nerd, you get an 18% off discount on your room. Just mention Improv Nerd when you call for a reservation or type in Improv Nerd in the discount code. Hotel Lincoln, the official hotel of Improv Nerd. And don't forget to pick up a copy of my book, Improv Therapy, the book that helps you get out of your own way so you can become an even better improviser. It's a short read. It's only $3.99, and it's available on my website at jimmycorain.com or at amazon.com. We have got another great episode of Improv Nerd for you, but when do we not? Don't I always come through for you? I mean, think about it. When was the last time I let you down? Our guest today comes all the way from Los Angeles, California, and he was in Chicago for the Chicago Comedy Nerd Festival. Our guest today is stand-up comedian Dan Telfer. Uh, Dan is open for people like Maria Bamford, Patton Oswalt, and Brian Posehn. He's written for The Onion and The AV Club. He's probably best known for his routine, The Best Dinosaur, that has gone viral. I mean, it's uh, just a huge hit on the internets, as the kids like to say. Before we get to this episode, I just want to say I have a very weird relationship with anger. The emotion anger, that is. And uh, one is I'm very afraid of other people's anger. So if someone's angry at me, I avoid them or just run away from them. But my own anger, I just bury it down. And I always thought, you know what, there's something wrong with me. It's my fault. Until I uh, met with my dad. And um, my dad, I've mentioned this before, is in his 80s now, and he's dying, and he's hooked up to oxygen. And uh, I went over there after uh, I had met with him about a month before and had a very pleasant uh, conversation with him. It was scary, but it was pleasant, where I uh, told him the 10 things that I'm grateful for that he's done as a father and the 10 things that I felt resentful towards my dad. And I ended up crying. I believe I've shared this in the podcast. And... Uh, I felt really super sad. So I went over uh, the other day uh, at his request to his house 
And uh, he was sitting there, and he goes, uh, and he was very hostile to me. And uh, I don't know if he's not getting enough oxygen uh, to his brain or towards the end of his life, and he's, he's getting a little more scared and angry. But he was very hostile. And um, he said, what's your agenda? I said, well, you know, there's a couple things I'd like to talk about. And then he went into his agenda, which was, uh, I, you need to get over your anger. You need to get over your anger. You know, you need to just man up and get over your anger. You know what you need to do? You need to put your anger in a box like I did and just put it on the shelf and get on with your life. I was really uncomfortable and, and I started to laugh and I said, Dad, well, it's good to see you're not angry. I am not angry. I have never been angry in my life. My father used to be angry. He was a rageaholic and I just buried my anger down there. And that's what you need to do. And that is what I've done my whole life. I buried it. I put it in that little box. And it's never helped me at all. It's hurt me, if anything. Uh, it's made me depressed, less creative, and it's led to numerous addictions that I've had. But the thing that was, that was, that has been cool about it, even though it's uncomfortable and I, and I feel scared and I feel angry and I feel sad and I feel hurt by, by these meetings with my dad sometimes, this, this one in particular, it's made me realize, like, I come by all of this stuff honestly. Okay, enough about me. Here it is, the Dan Telfer episode. Enjoy. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah! Yeah. What do you feel like, because your mom and, and your uncle and your aunt are in the audience, what do you feel? Uh, it's super weird. In terms of... Usually it's nice to hide them within like a dozen or so. <laughs> right. Uh, this is a very intimate show, yeah. as you know, and so that's what we do. We don't want to get too many people because then, <laughs> then people feel like they have to perform. We'd rather feel like we're eavesdropping on you. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Oh, it's so weird. I'm trying not, like, just to, not to turn my head too much. I feel like you're supposed are you not, to. You're not, you don't want to make eye contact with your parent? No, not when there's lights play. I like to hide behind the stage lights and not be able to see the audience, but I can hear very three familiar laughter uh, <laughs> sources. John, is there any way you can make it darker in the house no, for yeah. him? Because we can do that. No! Yeah. Yeah. No, I was joking. I was joking. Okay, so you grew up in the south suburbs, Joliet, Illinois, <laughs> and you're smiling at that, and you were a huge nerd. You said you were a weirdo. Yeah, very much so. Like, uh, they were just talking about me wearing a scarf as a child. Why did you wear a scarf? I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't like to look normal. I was already not normal. I got tall, and then I would get fat, and then kind of alternate. Like, I wouldn't always be the tallest kid in class, and then I would just start to be kind of dumpy, and then I would get to be the tallest kid in class, and then I was the most awkward kid. So anything to, anything to make it look as if I had a personality when I hadn't figured out my identity at all was, I'll take it. Let's do it. Let's wear a scarf. Let's wear weird colored clothes, whatever. And what was the change in the colors of your hair? Same thing? Oh, yeah, that was later. I kind of wanted to do that when I was in high school, and uh, my parents wouldn't let me. Uh, really? But once I turned, like, 18, 19, it's true. Uh, I was doing a lot of the blue hair, mohawk, green hair stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, yeah, I, I like punk rock music. I didn't like being judged for my exterior appearance. I like kind of giving people the middle finger uh, for, Liter for looking at me at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if, if I stared at you like in high school because you were tall and you were really, really big, uh, you would literally give me the finger? No, but I liked, I liked uh, at least thumbing my nose at the idea that my exterior appearance 
appearance is necessarily a part of my identity. And so when you have something like a bright blue and green mohawk, people are like, so you're doing that for attention? And you're like, nope, I'm doing it. So you know I'm not interested in you uh, <laughs> uh, and your opinions. And um, you, I think you told me you had like no, you, no friends in high school. Is that right? Uh, I didn't have a lot. No, it definitely got to like up to my sophomore year in high school where I was pretty much a loner. And it was, I had video games and stuff like that. And apparently Star Wars figures too. Yes. Very much so. And you, I, I understand collecting them and playing it, but selling them? I... Oh, that story. I mean, I don't even remember what my mom's talking about. That's a specific... <laughs> well, no, because it was like me playing with my little brother, right? Like, it was a game I made up when mm-hmm. I was, like, five. So I don't Selling know. Star Wars figures. Well, not literally, but, okay. like, like, I would make probably, like, one of the stormtroopers be, like, the salesman. And he would be, like, going up to Greedo and saying, like, Sarlacc for sale. Mm-hmm. And Greedo would be played by my little brother so he would you know give me you know too much money for the sarlacc it would be kind of a rundown sarlacc model (laughs) you know now were you also because you're 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 well known for a routine about dinosaurs were you into dinosaurs too as a kid yeah probably i mean i was into animals and and sci-fi stuff your mom just showed out sharks was that true sharks yeah i had a science project on sharks where i made a poster with like 150 different species of sharks that i drew on it and like researched and uh that was harder to do in the days before the internet. Right. Now it's like, yeah, what'd you do? Just look at Wikipedia, you idiot. But right. like, no, in like... You were 19- going to encyclopedias. Yeah, and like that. 1989, 1990, like going into books, trying to figure out as many species as I possibly could. And that was fun to draw them and, and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I've... Uh, yeah, the di- dinosaur thing, I mean, that that's just, I did that as a routine because I thought that would have a lot of resonance with your average person. I think when you're in third grade, everybody learns about 10 species of dinosaurs and remembers them. And sometimes people will be like, oh, it's so crazy. You know, I just have opinions about all of them. I don't... But you know what I think is so interesting is, especially that routine, it's a great routine. And if people don't know about it, can you just describe it really quickly? Yeah. So I usually uh, butter the audience up for like 30 seconds just getting them used to the idea that I'm kind of spazzy in general. Or just like not, uh, not like a normal male personality. <laughs> uh, and that maybe there's something wrong with me. Uh or that I, you know, that I might do something strange, and then I'll say I'm here to talk about dinosaurs more than do comedy. What do you guys think is the best dinosaur? And that's an important qualifier: best versus favorite. Because if you say favorite, it implies there's n- no debate. It's just a matter of personal preference. I say best, so it forces the audience to take an objective opinion about something that makes no sense. And then people start throwing stuff yeah. out like uh, Tyrannosaurus. Yes. And then you would say. Uh, whatever I felt like. I mean, I have like a stock answer for Tyrannosaurus, but if I'm in a good mood and it's a good audience, I will make something up and I will ask them about why they like Tyrannosaurus and and all that stuff. But you would. So what I find interesting is like that is you have to totally embrace your nerdiness for that to work. Yeah, but I already. I mean, some people become famous and then say they embrace their nerdiness. I have always been awkward. There's no awakening of nerdiness for me. It was like I was born unable to socialize in a normal way. I continued to do that. And at some point, I found the craft of theater, which gave me an outlet. And so, yeah, like, I don't do stand-up to make... uh, to make myself fit any kind of mold of stand-up comedian. I grew up loving stand-up comedy. I think I have something to contribute to stand-up comedy, and it's going to be weird. So let's talk about your, 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 your getting into theater. So yeah. you, you go from Joliet, 
you go to Columbia College and you become a theater major. Sure. Uh, and but also at this time, not only are you at Columbia College, you do a, an internship at Linda Jack Talent. Yes. A talent agency. So you're doing that. Yes. All right. And then you t- take an internship at uh, uh, the I.O. Yes. So the Improv Olympic here. So you're, I mean, you're doing a lot of things. I didn't know what I wanted to do, you mm-hmm. know, and I, it, I honestly don't think I figured that out till my late 20s, really, what my point was for being around. And how did you get to, to, to get into the I.O. and start doing improv? Uh, Frank Janish, who uh, was talent at Linda Jack Talent He was an Agency. actor at Linda Jack. And he, he took a shine to me, was super nice to me, told me if I was looking for something else to do with my spare time, I should intern at I.O. He didn't say it was for classes. He just said I should intern there. I was like, sweet, I'll see free comedy shows. And then... Um, it turned out like a weekend that I didn't realize I was supposed to be taking a class that was paid for by interning and that I was actually missing like 90% of the whole point of interning and then that led to being on a team and stuff like that. And the other thing I think is interesting is you were the youngest person, right? At the time, yeah. yeah. I was 18 years old and the youngest person had been like 20, 21. And what was that like being the youngest person? <sighs> um, it was really exciting and uncomfortable at the same time. What was uh, uncomfortable about it? Uh, I, I I already had kind of weird social skills, and so people were constantly showing off their confidence in improv. Like they were, they would be good supporting player as improv had taught them, but they would also be uh, very uh, cocksure and snotty. And I never knew how to deal with that as an eighteen-year-old. Like, why is this thirty-year-old talking down to me? Like, I'm just here to have a good time. Like. Who are you? Why, do, why should I care if you're being condescending to me? And so I would regularly be like, wait, just leave me alone. <laughs> and I didn't know how to like have any kind of social banter in that kind of situation. Now, you know, you say this, that, you know, you're socially awkward. Has that improved? Oh, I mean, for sure, yeah, yeah. Because of doing stand-up, because of performing? Yes. yes. I think every time I discovered a new aspect of performing, it gave me better offstage confidence. But I'm still a natural introvert. So if I feel like I just want to chill out, I will not make eye contact with strangers. I will, not, I will look at the ground. I will put in my earbuds. I will decompress and try to get some nice energy built up by being alone. How do you feel about right now as, uh, being interviewed? Great. Okay. <laughs> because you're- it's, it's like, it is weird with like the, the, the small audience because it makes you feel like um, it's, it, it almost feels... I always felt like this. When you do any kind of performance and there's a small audience, it's fun because it's like, oh, thank goodness... I still get to perform. Like, a bigger bummer would be that this was canceled. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, oh, is it more self-indulgent? You know, like, I remember I would do, like, one-man shows back in, like, 2000, and, like, only a couple people would show up. And it's like, oh, no, you came to see me do a half-hour monologue about my feelings, and there's three of you? <laughs> yeah! You know? Uh, and, and there is that. But uh, I always I have feel anxiety ba- about everything. I always feel bad because I'm like... You, you've come out, you've agreed to do it, and then we have a small house, and then I feel shame like I've disappointed you or let you You know, Jimmy, it's probably on me because I was, it took me too long to get back to you about what a good time was, uh, so you just you relax. It's on me. <laughs> right. um, but also at this time, it, it, so you're, you're doing I.O., you're at Columbia, mm-hmm. you're starting to do theater shows too as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you decide... That's why I went to Columbia, yeah. And you, start to, you get a job as a busboy at the Second City. yes. And then you take a sketch writing class there, right? Yes. And uh, Anne uh, Libera, 
uh, Libra says that you were really talented, and this was a dream of yours, right, Second City? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you, I watched a lot of SCTV as a kid, and then to hear that that was actually like a performance venue, I was like, oh, that must be this weird glowing rune-encrusted, like, magical theater that floats above the ground somewhere I'll never be able to reach. So just seeing a show there was crazy, but then to, to get to work there, I took, I took plenty of abuse uh, as the bottom-rung employee. In terms of to, what? I had to make ice cream floats and, like, uh, seat people, and I thought that was my whole job, but then I had to dishwash. And I, I remember I, didn't, I wasn't told about the dishwashing, when I got the job, and then all of a sudden I was constantly like burning my hands in the hot water and like <laughs> dropping glass and cutting my hands, and I was like really uncoordinated and felt bad. So I went to my manager and was like, "Hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't know I'd be washing dishes, and this is the worst thing I've ever said." But I said, "Hey, do you think I could maybe not get so many dishwashing shifts because I'm just bad at it?" And I feel like there's and remember I'm like 18, 19 years old, and she was like, "Oh yeah." Yeah, we can give you... Yeah, we'll take care of it. No problem. And sure enough, all my shifts were dishwashing for like two weeks. <laughs> and I went back to her and I was like, I am so sorry. They're, and remember, I'm like the, this sort of cocky, but also just dumb 18-year-old. And you're tall and you're heavy, right? I'm t- well, yeah. So right. like, I'm, I'm thinking like, oh man, this must be just a, a thing. And, and the, it was like entitlement, but also just stupidity. And so I was like... I think maybe you didn't mean this. And they're like, oh, we meant to do that. <laughs> this is what happens when you complain about dishwashing. You do more. Di- and I was like, oh, I didn't even mean to complain. I just literally thought you were signing me up for the wrong shift. They're like, no, you, that was really, it was a waste of our time and rude of you to bring it up. And I was like, oh, okay. I won't work here much longer, but thanks. And then did you quit after that? <laughs> uh, it was a few more months, but yeah. I was so, I was so bad at it. Like, I, I, I got to see, like, you know, like a year of shows and, and it was magic, but... Holy moly. I, I was like, as a busboy, there's a fly. You're like on a fly in the wall. Uh, you had to see some some shenanigans with some cast people, or some people being jerks, some people being nice. Oh, absolutely. I have dirt on people who are both dead and alive, and I will I will never speak. <laughs> really? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is the? Okay, you, I won't say who, but okay. I will say there's somebody who is beloved by the community who once uh, grabbed me by the shirt and threw me up against a wall and whisper screamed in my ear. Someone in the audience won't shut up, and it's your job to shut them up, do something, or I'll have you kicked out on your ass. And what did you do? Uh, I watched as someone else was already doing it. Like, literally, while I was pinned to the wall, someone else was talking to the person. Did they come back and apologize to you? No. How'd you feel about that person? Weird. I didn't know I was supposed to make, tell hecklers to be quiet. It was, again, like, it was like, <laughs> like oh, that's part of my job, too? Okay. Um, what about, like, night? That's the, that's the one side of it. They're jerks. But what about people being, like, really nice? Uh, everyone else was nice. That was, uh, you know, like, you saw a couple of people, uh, like, punch walls and stuff because they were frustrated. But, uh, you know, uh, other than that, there wasn't any real horrible things. Everyone was the best. I mean, I, I was there in, like, the late 90s. I forget which year it was. It was, like, you know, 98 or 99. And I saw just people who, they're the best comedy performers around. And, uh Wow. Wow. I mean, they were all really nice. You know, uh, they snuck me into the bar across the street before I was 21 just to hang Did out. Did your mom know that? I don't think she cares. <laughs> okay. Do you care about that? I didn't drink, though. Like, I was such a wimp that I would be like, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to sit here and eat fries. 
So you you didn't drink or do drugs or anything? No. Okay. I've, to this day, I've never uh, done any drugs besides uh, caffeine, booze, and smokes. How did you do? You, how did you? Well, how do you feel about that? Your your son lives a clean life. Well, I'm very proud of him in all aspects. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but it, who cares about weed? Why, why haven't I ever smoked weed? I feel like that, that that's not a big deal. Um, the thing. <laughs> Sorry that I, if there's kids listening, and I've just the, broken a cardinal rule of improv. <laughs> um, the thing I, I find also fascinating is that during college, you're working at Second City, you're taking classes at I.O., you're doing theater, not only at, at, at Columbia College, but other stuff. You're putting up plays. Yes. How were you able to do so much? Uh, I, I had no idea where I wanted to end up and was just trying to put everything I had into everything I could and see what stuck. And I feel like I got pretty far with everything. It just, I never, I never really got to a point with anything where I felt like where it was the absolute answer, like what I definitely should be doing full time. And I did, I did crave that. And I, my hope for doing so many things at once is that something would jump out at me and be the clear answer. But one of the tricky things about Chicago is there's no monetary reward for any of the arts. And so if you say dabble in six different uh, forms of the arts, none of them will ever reward you per se. Uh, and I wasn't necessarily looking for monetary reward, but I was definitely looking for like for comfort or like a plateau or a sense that it couldn't all just disappear instantly. And that never happened in any of those forms. So you started to do solo performing. Yeah. And and, and Stephanie Shaw, who is just she's very well respected she solo performer be. and. Uh, teacher and a writer and, and a writer yeah and uh, she said something that 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 changed your path a little yeah she told me my last year at Columbia that I shouldn't be doing uh, plays written by somebody else I should be writing words for myself and performing them by myself and how did you take that I thought that was a really shitty thing for her to say uh, I didn't tell her that. I just kind of got kind of scrunched up and was like, oh, okay, I'll take that into account. I see what you mean. I mean, I guess I have my own perspective on this. Right. Um, but at that point, she'd been my hero for like two and a half years. And so I knew I had to listen to it. And it took, you know, more years of theater and improv and solo performance. But it really, you know, when I started really committing to stand-up in like 2005, 2006, and, and it was going well way faster than any other ones, I was like, oh, I'm such, a, I'm such an imbecile. Like, it was for a reason that she said that. It was just frustrating because I knew the stand-up I wanted to do was not, like, Jeff Foxworthy, uh, Ron White, Larry the Cable Guy, which was all that was popular in my formative years. You couldn't leave the house and do stand-up without someone asking you, why can't you do stuff more like Jeff Foxworthy? What was your vision of the kind of stand-up you wanted to do? I had no idea. I mean, like, I didn't know what my vision was. I just wanted to be myself on stage. Talk about the things I found interesting, use my own perspective, and I sort of needed to consume a little bit of that in mainstream culture to feel convinced I wasn't nuts for wanting to do that in stand-up, which I think is always and still does has a bit of a reputation of like, if you're not as mainstream as possible, you're wasting our time. Like, you're not funny objectively if you're not just making jokes about Tinder or, or, or you know living in your parents' basement or just, you know, like, like that, that, that really, like, I mean, if you just watch the kind of stand-up that's still like really mainstream successful, it's all about dating and, uh, uh, I'm a straight white guy talking about how great it is to be a straight white. It's so tedious to me. It's so depressing. I don't even want to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, 
it took a long time before I felt like if I get on stage, it won't, I won't get booed off stage in like 30 seconds just for the content of what I'm doing. So how long did it take you to, to find your voice as a stand-up? Uh, pretty quick. When you said, what do you mean pretty quick? I was immediately just ranting about random bullshit that seemed to go great. So you're saying a month, two months? Nah, that's right away. I, you, like my ju- first jokes were like about cryptozoology and dinosaurs and, uh, and uh, like, like time travel. And it seemed to go fine. So there you go. <laughs> so, so you, <laughs> which, which, yeah, I mean, it's harder to fit into plays. You have to. Why do you think it went? Why do you think it happened so quickly for you? Um, maybe there just weren't. I mean, there's plenty of people who do this, the kind of material I do in stand up, but maybe back then locally there wasn't, and I just filled a tiny little niche that people didn't know existed at the time. And that gave me the confidence to branch out and do maybe not just self-indulgent stuff, but maybe not necessarily like broad, annoying mainstream stuff, but stuff more people related to. And I think my voice just sort of was right there finding its footing as I sort of got more confident. You know, when I hear self-indulgent stuff, I think of solo work. What is the difference between solo work and stand-up? And I di- I've done solo work, and I've been very self-indulgent. I think a really... <laughs> well, and I remember seeing you do uh, two-person improv in the '90s with Stephanie. Yes, Weir, uh, a show called Naked. Naked. Yeah. Yes, uh, I said at the same time as you, so you didn't need to tell me. Yeah. Um, just showing off how smart I am. Yeah. Um, you studied for the show. I no, I saw it in the okay. Del Close Theater, man. I'm not bullshitting you. And uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> it may be a small crowd, but I think it's a real. Don't you think they're really they're bringing it? It helps that they raise me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That support, it's just almost like instinctual. Um, he gets it. Uh, and he's not even related no. to you. No. No. I. Uh, you translate more than you think outside of your family. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. Maybe one day I'll make it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, self indulgent stand up is when you forget, you know, people want to be delighted, entertained, and laugh outside the lip of this stage. I think, um, uh, you know, when I say self-indulgent, I'm not talking about just one thing. There's this sort of whole Venn diagram chunk of stand-up, and all performing, but, but stand-up where you're talking about stuff on stage that makes you feel better, that maybe leverages the authority and status and privilege you have and you only are getting away with it because there's lights pointed at you and everyone else is forced to be in darkness and while I think that situation can be leveraged into a lot of fun bits like say yelling at the audience about how dumb their favorite dinosaur is I think a lot of people get on stage and go uh, I love to fuck bitches I'm here to talk about it let's make everyone feel horrible about being a bitch or being a dude who doesn't fuck and uh, everyone will laugh at how uncomfortable they are and all that stuff. And that that's really indulgent. There's people who need therapy very desperately and go on stage and uh, talk about how sad they are. And they do it in a tone that implies it's stand-up comedy, but really all you're seeing is a person dissolve on stage. Uh, I just did a show on Thursday with a couple of my friends. Um, and it was, it was uh, an MC and then 10 comedians I didn't know who they were but they were there to help bring an audience they're all supposed to do like 5 minutes each and then my two friends and then me and the MC had kind of a rough set but he was doing his best but then he made a comment about how the audience wouldn't listen 
how the audience wasn't a good audience. And there's like, you know, 30 of them there, but they all kind of sighed sadly when he called them out. It's like, no, your jokes just weren't ready yet. You're a newish comedian. You're 20 years old. Your jokes aren't landing. Don't, don't blame the audience. Then he did, and it was fine, but he was like a, he was affable, so it was annoying that he called the audience up. But it, then the second guy who came out, the first quote-unquote comedian, uh, immediately just did jokes about how his dad left him as a child and his mom had recently died, and he was only supposed to do five minutes. He went 15 minutes, ignored the warning to get off stage, yelled at the audience for being shitty, and just went on. And it was like, you know people have to follow this, right? And also the audience was like, sad. Like, they were like, we want to like you. We paid money. This seemed like a good idea when we left the house. (laughs) But uh, I think when you get on stage, if your first joke in stand-up, and this works obviously very different from improv, but in stand-up, like, if your first joke, your second joke, don't land, and the whole audience just kind of stares at you, it could be for so many reasons. You should stop telling jokes and just talk to the audience. Maybe you're not good at talking to us. Maybe you're not good at improv or crowd work or whatever you want to call it. But holy mackerel, you got to win them back. you got to make them feel like they're a part of the show. The, the fourth wall doesn't exist for you. If you keep screaming at everybody and feeling like, oh, but they pointed lights at me. I must have won the competition for cool person. You're just irritating. And I think it's so... Um, it's so much of a bummer, and you feel I feel like that self-indulgent part of comedy really come out there. And it ha- happens, I think, uh, in every form of comedy. But that's where it happens in stand-up, I think. You know, you, you're touching on some things, because uh, you also created this curriculum at Second City for stand-up. Yes. Uh, stand-up class. Uh, what are the, some of the things people need to learn to be a good stand-up? To listen to the audience, to do the same bits over and over again. I think there's a real anxiety about, like, oh, I've done this joke once. Don't want to ever do that again because what if some no one remembers your jokes, right? <laughs> like, like you say that bit about dinosaurs. That is a that is a bit that I came up with almost ten years ago, went viral on the internet five years ago, and like I feel like people have had time to figure out that I do it. So when someone comes out and says, "Hey, you're known for doing dinosaur bits," I'm not like, 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 oh, of course you know. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that's cool. They know. And I think a lot of people go to an open mic once. They do their joke about, I don't know, coats. And uh, they think it's a great joke about coats. I'll never do that joke about coats again because people can't forget that amazing joke I did about No, they don't give a shit. They don't know who you are. They vaguely remember the shape of your face. And in a week, even less so. So do your coat joke over and over until you've made the wording perfect you can adapt it slightly. It's not in stone. It's kind of got arms that you can branch off to. It's like, here's the version of the coat joke I do when there's two people in the audience. Here's the version I do when it's 20. Here's the joke when I do 200. If you don't have that kind of flexibility and awareness about your dumb little coat joke, you're doomed. And I think that's important. Uh, the dinosaur bit, how long did it take you to, like, it's cooking now? How many times do you think you know. put it up? I don't know. It's tough. I started it not as a crowd interactive bit. I just yelled about Velociraptors. And then I tried yelling about Brontosaurus's after yelling about Velociraptors. And it went so well, I was like, I feel like I could do this about all dinosaurs. Instead of writing a third dinosaur joke, I'm just going to see what the audience has to say and then yell at them. And that went surprisingly well. Usually when you yell at an audience, it's the worst idea. As I said, it's self-indulgent. 
but I, did, I figured out how to set myself up as the idiot. So I look like an idiot. Like part of the reason I think the joke is funny is I can cumulatively make it clear to the audience I'm willing to look like an idiot yelling. About well, you this. look like you're, you look like you look nuts. Is what you yeah, do? Yeah, exactly. Like, what, what the? It helps. Well, yeah, it's, it helped. Like if you look like you're having a self-aware meltdown on stage, yes. people enjoy that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's the it's the uncontrollable. I drank too much before getting on stage, and I'm having a real meltdown, and I miss my mom. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> Hi, mom. Um, she'll live forever. Um, I think like the the amount of people who go on stage just for themselves sucks. You know, I I hate being called out when I'm in an audience because I, I know like oh this is gonna be about you. It's gonna like how many times I've been in a stand-up comedy audience just to watch and like someone's called on me and be like, hey, you going to get any pussy tonight? And I'm like, what are we talking about? I've been married for 10 years. No, I don't care if I'm, I'm going to go home to the intimate relationship I have. Fuck yourself. You know, like uh, I think there's so much laziness. Uh, you know, I think the, all that matters is you keep doing it. Just keep, keep doing it. I try to make the class at Second City like an open mic. So it feels like, oh, you took this class because maybe you're not ready to just go out there and do it. At first, class number one, I tell them, there's 10 open mics in your neighborhood every night of the week. So number one, you should be going to open mics between classes. <laughs> number two, this can be like a safer open mic. You know, I, I don't want anyone to take the class and think it's a substitute for so, that. So you design it where you, you, you go, you bring your material, you do your material each, each and every week, basically. Yep. Um, now, when you started here in Chicago, you're, immediately you, you, you got it. You figured it out. You, were get, you, you went from quickly doing open mics. People wanted you to showcase now. I got very lucky. Yes. Okay. What kind of flack did you get from the, from the other comics? A little bit. You know, I knew some crossover people from doing, uh, like, sketch and improv. There's always people who do both, you know, stand-up and improv. And I had people who were willing to vouch for me. Um, but there were plenty of people who I was doing a couple of shows with, and as I would try to get friendly with them, they would kind of back off, and I would notice, oh, they were part of a clique that actually thinks it's annoying that this, you know, 27-year-old dude came in here yelling really loud, and all of a sudden he's getting booked without having to, quote-unquote, pay his dues. I'd paid my dues in the theater and improv scene enough to have confidence, and so that was just weird. Uh, I think most of the time people get up and they don't even know how to get on stage as they're starting stand-up. And so that was just alarming for people. I think people figured it out reasonably quick. I think within a couple of years that all melted away. But there's definitely a, a period where people 10 years younger than me were like, why didn't you pay your dues? And it's like, well, I was, I've been doing other stuff. Uh, and, you, you know, you, I still had to pay my stand-up dues. I still had to spend two years doing stand-up every night of the week. Like anyone else, and then you get to open for Maria Bamford at I'm having a hard time. Maria Bamford at the Lakeshore Theater. Yes, which is a great story. Yes, it's awesome. How, I, um, how did that happen? Uh, the guy who ran and booked the theater, Chris Ritter. Chris Ritter, uh, who is a huge part of why I uh, I've had any modicum of paid stand up in my life. Uh, I don't know if. <laughs> I don't know if I ever got paid for performing at the Lakeshore. Right. I don't know if the Lakeshore ever gave me a cent, but... Um, did the checks not clear, or did they promise you oh, money? Oh, no, no, no checks. checks. There okay. were no promise of checks. Was um, there ever, like, we're going to pay you $100, and then that was... Nah. Okay. Nothing, nothing like that. Okay. Um, but they were a big theater, and they uh, figured out they wanted to not just do Defending the Caveman, a real thing they had there. And they wanted to do sort of more... Uh, 
stand up for the sake of an individual voice, kind of alternative-y comedy. And the guy who ran it was going to local venues to look for openers. He came to the show I ran at the Bee Kitchen. The Comedy Underground. Uh, Chicago Underground yeah, Comedy. And uh, was like, hey, you know, while I'm here, if you ever... And he'd already given me, like, random showcases, excuse me, over there. Um, but he was like, if you ever want to just open for somebody, tell me who. And I was like, Maria, let me open for Maria. Oh, my God, Maria. And he was like, oh, done. She's here in November. And then she, uh, Maria canceled. Uh, Ritter went to rehab. Uh, Doesn't that she suck? Re- she, well, ugh. like the worst part of, of stand-up is already being your own agent and advocate in situations like this. But it's even worse when, like, you know, other people's frailties stop you from getting this sort of cheesy goal you mm-hmm. had. And you have to reassess, like, oh, should this still be my goal? Or am I an asshole if yeah. I pursue this now? And... And, you know, because Ritter had been so good to me, and, and then Maria came back in January, but Ritter wasn't around, and I had to convince the new booker that I wasn't just some random street person, and he should still let me open for them, and he wasn't returning my emails, and I had to kind of, like, a week before, like, pin him down and be like, I was supposed to open for Maria, and he was like, oh, I already booked someone else, I guess you can co-open or whatever. Um, Did that take a little away from it? No. Okay. No, because what else was I doing? I was mm-hmm. doing bars and stuff around Chicago, and... uh I'd only traveled on the road to do stand-up a few times, and it was such a crapshoot, because I was still just doing it for the love of doing stand-up. And I just wanted to open for Maria Bamford, and she was super great to me. She watched my sets, and when I emailed her to just say, hey, thanks for doing it, she was like, you should come open a couple of times. And, uh, yeah, she uh, she still lets me uh, do shows with her sometimes. And you open for other people there, too, right? Yeah, I got to open for a bunch of really cool people, and it, uh and I'm sure people hate me for that too. I think there's still people who think I'm an asshole for opening for everyone. At the Lakeshore Theater, <laughs> there was like a year where where Ritter was like, "Who else do you want to open for?" And I I was like, "Well, I'll just tell you everyone." <laughs> and he let me pretty much every time. And people were like, "Is he not even trying to book any other openers?" And how do you deal with that shit? You know, like people either in your head or people coming up to you or kind of the like, "Ugh," you know that. They're not going to say it directly. They're going to be more passive-aggressive. Right, right. If, if, they, if I'm ever open, like a part of the conversation, you just be really honest and you're like... I'm really jealous that you got to open yeah. for Maria Bamford and like the 20 other people, Mark Marin, uh, uh, Pat Oswalt. Yeah. You, you know, just, why don't I get that? You just, you just say, uh, look, I'm putting in the work. I'm glad I get to do it. What am I going to do? Turn it down. You know, this is... This is Something, you know, what am I, I'm not booking it. Like, I'm, I'm being offered it at this point. Um, I'm asking to do it, yes, but he doesn't have, like, wh- I'm not having terrible shows while I'm doing it, is the thing. Well, do you have the same thing, like, when you see other people get Oh, success? for sure. Okay. For and sure. How do you deal with that? Internally. Okay. <laughs> so stay off Facebook. Don't say anything. Yeah. Say yeah. Yeah, which sounds crazy. But seriously, I think if you, if you, if it's 2015 and you haven't figured out that Facebook is sort of like, I don't know, the gutter, uh, you're, <laughs> you know, it, it's the worst. Right. And it, it's always been the worst. It, you know, um, I can't, I watched the movie The Social Network and it made me nauseous. I, I don't think I enjoyed it at all. And um, my wife loves that movie. Favorite movie. My best friends love that movie. Right. But there's just he's so unlikable. And I I remember being like in my early twenties. I wish there were more like unlikable antiheroes in like stories. And now it's like if the hero hasn't murdered twenty people, it's not a real hero. And 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 uh, that movie was just one of those times where I'm like, who the fuck is he really? This big of a jerk. Why do I? So this is all about just like like 
banging ladies with the what is, what is this and I, I already I already knew that Facebook was kind of creepy so it just sort of so when you more... feel that someone's got get something that you wish you would have gotten or something how do you how do you you internalize it what do you mean by that um, I am crippled with self-doubt for 12 14 hours <laughs> you know I can totally relate to it there's yeah you know um, I'm uh, I'm at a point where I'm trying to ignore how old I am. I'm seeing people who are definitely younger than me getting things I thought I would have by now, and you just have to ignore it. You just have to, you you know, you can process it in a logical way, but as soon as you feel that emotional part of yourself creating all the reasons you don't have <laughs> what you want, you have to go. But it's not something I can control. There's like some something I think you all hear when you're a teenager, like you know, only only. Concern yourself with the things in life you can control. That saying is—is is it harder in LA for you because it is the, the land of the beautiful people, the young and the beautiful I'm very people? Very attractive, I, I, <laughs> and, and I think it's coming across in this podcast. I uh, hope so. Yeah, because, and um, uh, so it's so, so it's that, and then the you know so you've got that, and then it seems like it's more in your face there. You can avoid it here in Chicago. Nah, no, I disagree. Okay, well you you live it. I'm just throwing out the question. Here's how LA. L.A. and Chicago are different, and here's how they're the same. They're the same in that there's, like, in each city, one million people who think they're going to be an entertainer for a living of all ages, and that's exactly the same in both places. In L.A., 1% of them actually make a living, unlike Chicago, where it's 0%. And in L.A., that 1% is often a huge, insane scrap fest, the most competitive scrap fest in all of all job markets, and it's often dominated by 19-year-olds with vines that are all about date rape and, like, racism and uh, all sorts of petty, creepy habits that get 19-year-olds famous. And you look at that and you go, who are these monsters? Who are these young, indifferent pieces of garbage? Why can't I have what the Oh, wait, it's only still 1%. It's, there's a thriving community everywhere you go of intelligent people, and those people still get picked for stuff the same way they do in Chicago – it's just those that pocket of millionaires that only exists in L.A., which you can avoid. So it's 1%. If you don't go on Hollywood Boulevard at 2 in the morning, you will never see those in-your-face pieces of shit people. If you don't cruise the jewelry stores in Beverly Hills, you will never see the fucking Kardashians. They're non-existent as far as I'm concerned. So there's, I think, a, a mythology to that part of L.A., it only exists if you're a creepy, petty person. I know a lot of people in their 30s who start to get really worried about that. But it's like, well, but look, you can just go perform at a cafe across the street the same way you could in Chicago. I miss the rain and the snow. I, I like weather. But other than that, L.A. is not that, not as different as I think some people concern themselves with. Did I really get you riled up on that question? I get riled up about everything. Okay. Because <laughs> I didn't know if you were like angry about no, it. No, and like that's it. a weird part of me too, and that's part of my social weirdness. Right. I just get it, I get passionate and my face turns red and I just don't I'm just I'm not angry. I'm right, just, and I couldn't see your eyes. When I get I'm, I'm looking I'm, you can't see my eyes because I'm avoiding eye contact because I'm interested in my own ideas too much. <laughs> well it almost sounds like do you think part of you might have been on the spectrum a little? I, it's come up. Are you serious? I don't know. I don't what know. Do you, what do you mean it's come up? Uh, people, whenever you're a uh, social outcast, they love to tell you what your mental disorder is. Is that what I just did right now? Maybe. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> right. I've been told I have a number of things. I've been told I have depression. I have that. Generalized anxiety I have disorder. That. <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't know. How does that look? I might have it. <laughs> um, I'm more on the obsessive end of it. Which My is? wife is more on the compulsive so, end of it. So, what, like, give me an example. I can't stop thinking about stuff, and then I want to control it if possible. So I'm I definitely have that. I have that. <laughs> Anything else we've left off the list? I don't know. <laughs> we're at, we're at the end of the list. Is that? Well, you got three. Oh. I no. thought there might have been anxiety, more. depression, and, and yeah. OCD. That's a good combination. It is, but like you know, people. <laughs> If they notice you act weird, like uh, I've had people because of the OCD come up to me and be like, uh, well, you know, you've always said you were a control freak and you, you like to just sort of, you know, uh, you like to mess with people and kind of sometimes you'll manipulate people. And I'm like, I never said that. Oh, but I heard you had OCD, so I assumed you said that about yourself. Like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? I, but I, 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 I do that. I'm, I'm I don't a control think I'm a, freak and I, and I can be a big manipulator. I think, I think I'm a good... I'm good at uh, knowing when not to manipulate and be a control freak. Well, how do you manipulate? How do you manipulate? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I just like to have a project that I work on obsessively. I like to... I love that. If I'm responsible for something, I like it to look good. Um, But I'm pretty good at sharing responsibility, I think. Well, that's an improv probably helped you. Yeah. Right? Oh, for sure, for mm-hmm. sure. And, and yeah, the spectrum. People love to just be like, "You have Asperger's syndrome," and I think that's just, I don't know. Maybe I do, but I have no problem with emotions, so I don't know how. Yeah, I, I have tons of problems with emotions. I think sometimes I might be on the spectrum. We could be on, you know. We might both be on the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> and there, I think there's other people that would meet us there. What color do you want to be on the spectrum? Uh, I love green. I've always been an orange person. Okay, okay. Is there colors to the spectrum? I okay. I always like to imagine when people say the autism spectrum that they're talking about the visible color spectrum, mm-hmm. and then there's like you know microwaves and gamma rays on right. one side and ultraviolet and infrared on either end of it, and like all that stuff. But like wedged between visible colors and like microwaves, there's the autism spectrum. Right. <laughs> Right. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna improv- <laughs> we're gonna improvise a little here. Uh, we're gonna improvise. When was the last time you improvised? Um, and we won't go long. I promise. It was really weird, but uh, I, I I did uh, Armando at IO West uh, like a year and a half ago. Right. As the monologist. As the monologist, but, but then which, I jumped in a couple scenes. How was that? How did that it feel? Was all right. Okay. I did my best. So I want to set us up to. Or, uh, I want to help you out as much as I possibly Great. can. Great. So what 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 do you how do you like to to work? Give me something to do with my hands. That'll be a great suggestion. Give you something to, to do. Because I feel like I, I used to do a lot of like, I'm chopping a block of wood. Okay. Or, or all that stuff. And now I've, now the only thing anyone does with their hands is play with their phones or their iPads. Yes. So something to do with my hands that's not an iPhone. Mine's always like washing the dishes or going to a cabinet or right. opening the refrigerator. Right. So that's how really, you get those argumentative roommate scenes going. Everyone yeah. And, then, so you know, and it really works at 51. It still works, you know? I've been doing it for like 30 years, and I, I think they actually get better. They actually get better. All right, so you want your suggestion, something to, like uh, an activity to do with your yes. hands? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, could we have an activity, something you would do with your hands? Chop vegetables. Chop vegetables. Now, you, we, you talked about chopping vegetables. You hear chopped vegetables. What are you going to do with, the, with this suggestion? Um, I'm going to chop some vegetables. Okay. Now, do you think, okay, this is a relate? Because right now I'm thinking chopping vegetables. How do we avoid being in either a restaurant or roommates? 
What's wrong with the restaurant? I, I don't know. I feel like that's the one I always go to. Oh, okay. Well, for me, if it's roommates, for you, if it's restaurants, let's, uh, where else? We could be doing it at work. It can be weird that I'm chopping vegetables. Okay, work. that could be a possibility. We'll find out, all right? We'll call the scene ourselves, so let's go. Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. Stalker for the last couple of years? I mean, <laughs> I just like to, you know, I feel like if someone's going to talk to you at work, it's like, I don't know you outside of work, right? So you have to fix that a little bit. That's all it is. Man, but you can't like go over to her house and stuff. There's certain things that you can't learn from Facebook tagging. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, like, I'm just trying to find, like, what is the, like, modern way of, of kind of getting to know somebody. You just go and you, you ask her out. Well, sure, but that puts a lot of pressure on me, I guess. Right? Because yeah. then what if she says no? Right. <laughs> then I'm like... <laughs> You're still working at the same time. Right, place, and right? then she's like, you know... Talking to me, and I'm reminded of being a failure. Right. And, and then you get a restraining order. and she, she wouldn't get a restraining order against me, right? Is she getting a res, she's getting yeah. a restraining order. That's why she's leaving. I thought she was, you know, just retiring early no. because no. she likes she's, vacations. No. <laughs> ah. Why, why can't she just get me fired like a normal person? Why she have to? Why she have to make this all about her? Why? why? Because she knows that your dad owns the company. Well, yeah, but you know, I'll run out of favors eventually. Maybe. Does everyone know that's why she's leaving? Yes, man. Everybody knows. <laughs> that's why you didn't get to sign the going away card. Am I being fired? Um, I wouldn't call it fired. Let's just say that you're going to take a leave of absence. Okay. Um, well, I really appreciate you uh, looking out for me. Yeah. Uh, I, you always know what's going on in yeah. the office, and, yeah. and you never really tell me about it. It's almost like there's something about me that puts you off, or, or I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to be mean or anything, but I feel like sometimes... I will go to you and be like, hey, I feel like there was a party last night in the office and I was older and didn't know about yeah. it. And you'll be like, I can't help you. And yeah. it's like you're protecting something. Yeah, there was a party last night. <laughs> we actually had her going away party tonight. Th these trays, these party trays we're putting out, yes. it's, just, it's just, just a formality. So we didn't hurt your feelings. She's gone. These are like just what? Just, just pity cucumbers? Yeah. <laughs> She's gone. She cleared her stuff out uh, yesterday. So when she would just come and talk to me in my cube, it was like a, please don't ever, ever, ever talk to me in any ever. other way. Yes. Kind of a like, yeah. if it felt impersonal, yeah. it's because it was definitely impersonal. Yeah. It wasn't like I was reading too much into it. It was exactly. like, please, yeah. 
<laughs> All right, well, uh, leave of absence sounds pretty good. Um, so, huh, feel a little painted in the corner here, chopping vegetables for myself when I'm being forced out of the company in like an hour. Um, I guess I'm gonna keep chopping vegetables because if I don't, it's just going to make everyone else really uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is it weird that I'm holding a knife and everyone thinks I'm a stalker, though? Uh, yeah. That's why they're they're all in the other room and they just sent me in here. They knew that I'm not a, I'm the only person not afraid of you. <laughs> you uh, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Sure. When they promoted you to, uh, to being on my sales team, mm -hmm. you never really became part of the You were always just the head of security, weren't you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's why you just kind of hung out at meetings. Yeah, and, and I was actually, uh, can, can I say something personal to you? Yeah. Um, uh, I thought, you know, I thought it would take a lot longer to catch you to do this stuff, but after like four days, it was like this guy is just this guy is a creep. Uh huh. <laughs> sure. I mean, am I caught though, really, or am I just on some sweet leave of absence <laughs> where like I'm just coming back, right? No, you're not coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a leave of absence. They can't. Well, that's what we're telling you. But I'll be like a consultant, right? So I could just, you know, I use sure. my money to like sure. build my own company sure. and come sure. back and destroy sure. all of you for betraying me. Yes, yes. If that's what we have to tell everybody, we're, I'm more than... What do you mean? You're not going to tell anybody because I'll be destroying you. Yes, yeah. And you'll eventually buy us out. Yeah. So why don't you put the knife down and I will just escort you out of the building now. Would you like a cucumber before you go? <laughs> Scene. Great job. You made it so much about me being insane. <laughs> okay. I got terrified. Are you serious? The, I, uh, I'm so nervous, I think, about actually looking crazy mm -hmm. on stage that that made me sort of wonder, like, like do I, am I one of those people I was just complaining about? Mm -hmm. Like, in this really, I got really, I'm not, I, I forgot how much of a feedback loop you can get into when you're doing improv. A feedback loop, can you explain? Yeah, like I'm playing a character and people are also maybe judging me for this character. It's weird. Mm -hmm. It's weird. So you felt like uh, you were getting in your head because you thought people would actually think you were kind of crazy or like this Only like a, like a superficial way, but it definitely was like, oh, we're going there. Oh, oh, I wonder why we're going there, you know? Mm -hmm. And that, that, it was completely impulsive and meaningless, but it, it was there. Okay, because I felt like I'm just going to keep feeding this guy, just going to make yeah, it more yeah, and more which crazy. was fun, but like also like I don't know. It's also with a small audience doing improv is really weird. Mm -hmm. Doing any kind of performing, like I like the interview with an audience, and then when you go into performance again, it's like, oh, everyone's laughing, but uh, what if one person isn't? Then that's the person I got to make laugh. And uh oh, should I change gears here? <laughs> um, if I was doing stand up, I think you know. My first impulse would be, oh, I've got one patch of the room laughing. I'll go focus on that person. And I've, that muscle is so worked up that now when I do improv, I'm like, am I just making my mom laugh? 
<laughs> um, anything you would have done differently in this scene? Yeah, I would have loved to build up your character more early. Mm -hmm. I would love to make a statement about who you were right off the top and what you were doing. Mm -hmm. I think I was very focused on uh, the literalness of my physical action. Well, I think you did. You, you did. I, you did some nice moves about like, uh, the, oh, am I being fired? And that kept that forwarded it. And I just was going. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna agree and agree and agree to that. Yeah. You know, and I felt like I started out as a certain character. It was fun to start with an activity. I started as a certain character, and then like I'm going to adjust to this. So I felt like I, I felt like I changed like three different times and played more of a the straight man to your. Crazy yeah, yeah, man. you got scary at the end there yeah. when you were like, "It's time to leave." I'm like, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, we're going to take some questions now from the audience. Sounds great. Uh, at, uh, or your parents, or anyone. <laughs> they could uh, be both. Oh yes, or uh, relative. So uh, a question for Dan. Who's got a question for Dan? Uh, yeah, uh, let's start with uh, Lauren right over here. You can get my mom out of the way too. Do we, okay, you want to get your mom out of the way? Oh, great. Let's start with your mom. <laughs> it was a joke. She, you know, she. By the way, she won the raffle prize. Eight, yeah, I know. You've eight already microwave won the cups prize. of Kraft macaroni and cheese. Oh man. Yes, Dan's mother. I'll save it for when you come visit. Oh. <laughs> I have so many questions, but one. Um, did I read something that someone approached you at the airport? But are you that guy? Oh, there's a tweet. I made that up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never learn about Twitter. No, I've told her so many times if I tweet something, don't take it literally. But then when we're talking on the phone, she'd be like, was that real? Mm -hmm. No. Do you guys, do you have a pretty good relationship? I think so. Yeah, you too. Do you talk? Dan's now in, in L.A. Do you talk to him a lot? And We, we email, we, you know, sometimes Facebook, some, you know, call. I just was out there visiting, so, you know. I think we talked pretty, pretty much. Are you proud of what, what he's accomplished? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The confidence that he has. You know, uh, I was thinking when we were talking about smoking and drinking and taking drugs, how I didn't take serious drugs when I was young because I had such low self-esteem. It was because, you know, if I, I'm already crazy, why take something to make me crazier? Whereas he did it out of a more confident way and a much more intelligent way. So, you know, there's so many ways that he's improved on we've been. How is your low self-esteem today? Be a lot better. Great. How's yours? <laughs> better. Great. Just to see where you might have gotten your low self-esteem? Sure. Okay. I've, right. I've, We're not I here to blame. Yeah. I have low self-esteem too. I don't think I ever had like so much of a, like, like once I, once I got to be tall, the self-esteem thing fixed itself a little bit. I just In terms more of frustrated. What? More frustrated. Because I was never tall. I was a fat kid. How did the height do that? Well, because I was being physically beat up. Until like freshman year of high school on a pretty regular basis. For so there what? Was like a, for just being introverted and the, the slob or mm -hmm. like the weirdo. And so once I became really tall, it became more of a pain in the butt to throw me in a dumpster. Mm -hmm. And so it was like just, just it was by impractical. Yeah. Strictly impractical. It's going to take three guys to do that. Yeah. And it used to just take one of them. And so there was like, it took me a year. But I think eventually I was like, oh, I can use this to my advantage. Because when you told me that you were like, uh, what we would say, 6'5 and, yeah. and 270, I'm like... People had to be kind of afraid of you. But that wasn't until six five two seventy wasn't until college. Okay. In in, in high school, it was like six five one hundred seventy five. Mm, okay, great. Uh, Lauren. Yeah, I wanted to know what is it like for you to work at at midnight? It's great. Uh, I run their social media, so I get to sort of creep around and like uh, I get to you know I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of really fun experiences over there building like online videos uh, I get to do little backstage videos with the, the comedians on panel and it's a good time have you ever been on panel no 
Could not for you, lack of trying. I'm just. Oh, not. you have tried? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you? How? What, what do you Jimmy, say? Why aren't you on panel? I don't know. I, I'm you trying to learn from you. I have no lessons to teach when it okay. comes to how to be on television. I'm still, I'm still figuring that out. Um, but there's also like doing social media. There, it's a, it's a, it's its own medium, wouldn't you say? In terms of comedy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, you'd be surprised how often you can poach a joke on Twitter for stand-up if you just uh, rephrase it so it sounds more conversational, and then throw in a comment like at the end, and it becomes oh, that's that's. So give normal. me an example of uh, some. Uh, like there's a joke. Uh, I had I forget how it started on Twitter, but it was something like, um, you know. Uh, Actually, no, this is a, here's a joke that, that translated word for word from Twitter to the stage, and I've done both. Uh, I wish I were better at writing jokes about parallel dimensions. Luckily, I am. <laughs> and so it's just in the delivery. On Twitter, you type it out. What can you do? Maybe add an ellipses uh, somewhere. But on stage, it's like you kind of have to do it nice and slow. Use your hands. <laughs> Walk everyone through the, the pretentious wording of what you're doing here. And what is the hands part? Well, I'll go like this. I'll say, uh, I'll take one, my left hand usually, mm -hmm. and I'll hold it out as if I'm grasping for something unattainable. I'll, I'll pull a Yorick, mm -hmm. and I'll say, I wish I were better. Just shaking that hand, like, will the promise of being good at this suddenly fall from the heavens and materialize as a corporeal form in my hand? I wish I were better at writing jokes about parallel dimensions. And then that sounds like a failure. Mm -hmm. I let everyone in the room soak in that failure and wonder why he's bothering talking about this. <laughs> and then while, before it's too late, before they forget we're talking about writing jokes in parallel dimensions, I take my other hand that's holding the mic, I make a similar gesture, and I say, luckily, I am. <laughs> so I've created two worlds, visually for them, the world where I'm bad and the world where I'm good at writing jokes about parallel dimensions. And then I kind of do this, like I'm mushing them together like Play-Doh. Do you think you got that from your the, using some physicality? Because when sure. you think of you, theater and yeah, yeah, because yeah. you because you, you don't think of, of stand up bringing those kind of elements to it. I think some stand ups do. I think a lot of stand ups, all they really do is hump a stool. <laughs> That's their idea of theatricality. Like, yeah, and then you're fucking. And then they just do that for however long it takes to make the sadness go away. Um, but. <laughs> I really, I love any time I can do something more physical on stage, sure. And, and you said something interesting, too, is like in stand-up where you, you're getting a laugh from this part of the room. You play to that part of the room? No. You try to, you acknowledge them, you keep feeding them, but you look at the room, the side of the room that you're not playing at, and you see if you can figure it out without tanking your set. Okay, so let, let's just say you this side of the room, and that, that would be, uh, the what side would that be? The, the left side. Sure. Okay, and then where your parents, your family is, yes. that, that side isn't working. What's going, <laughs> what's, going on in your, what's going on in your head? What's going on in your well, head? Well, if, if the side of the room that's not working is mostly comprised of my immediate family, then there's certainly something going on there. Right. There might be, <laughs> might be might not be able to get into. Right. There. might be issues beyond the comedy. No, but like you, you, you know, uh, in this particular uh, instance, I don't know, but, uh, you know, like she's been writing for most of the time, which I don't, I don't not know. Not intimidating at all, right? No. Not intimidating Guys, she's just writing down the, the quotes to put on our social media. Oh, great. Media. So I and I figured it was something like that, like, but like, uh, you know, I'm used to that from performing in just coffee shops and right. stuff. So you can't take that personally. Right. But then what you might say if you were doing stand-up is like, I have to ask, what are you writing there? And then if she said something, we could maybe riff back and forth and do mm -hmm. some jokes about it. Mm -hmm. 
But I think, you know, that's part of the key is, like, you, you act curious as opposed to offended. So let's say there's a part that isn't responding. Would you – and they're not writing – would you say what's wrong with you guys tonight? No, no, because that's the that's and that's what sucks is when somebody torpedoes the energy in the room, not just for themselves, but for the audience, for all the comedians who have to follow them, by accusing the audience of being at blame. And yeah, there are shows where the audience sucks, but you don't say, "Hey, you suck." You <laughs> you figure it out while you can. You try <laughs> to steer the ship. You try to charm them, mm-hmm. uh, and that you can poke at them a little bit. It's it's just, but it's a matter of status. It's like. I'm already got the lights pointed at me. I already have the freedom to do whatever I want. Am I going to waste that by being an asshole? Am I gonna? Am I going to go up to a stranger who might have only showed up to have a good time and be like, "Fuck you!" You know, like that's right. so. It, it makes me look bad to everybody. It's not endearing to anybody to attack someone who's done nothing but sit there quietly. But you know, um, you do want to chat them up and be like, "Hey." Uh, uh, at most, say something like, "I feel like this side of the room I haven't won over yet. What's going on with you guys? Where'd you come in from? You know, what 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 what, 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 what could I be talking about up here that you want to hear more of? You know, like just kind of random banter. Uh, what do you do for a living? You know, and then you just you work on it. But I think if you say you're not giving it to me without there being a twist or a comment or an irony to it, it's like just brutally unfunny. It's just depressing. It's like why is the comedian?" Harshing on us for not laughing. And you don't go in and say, okay, this is my set thing, and I'm going to do it just how I've always done it. I want to, uh-huh. but I think, like, for me personally, it's different for a lot of people. I, not, I don't feel like there's any complete truisms in comedy. You know, there's a lot more aggressive, confident comedians out there who would throw all my rules out the window. But, uh, you know, a lot of what I do is momentum-based. So if I feel like I really haven't won this audience over yet and I'm still kind of like figuring out how to get them on my side, then I do have to, I think, do more audience interaction stuff, maybe start with broader jokes. But sometimes I don't know that until I get on stage. If it's... uh, Is that exciting? Kind of. It's also work. Mm -hmm. But it's part of the work I like. So I don't know. Because that's where your improv background must come in really helpful. Yes, for sure. Um, it's it's but but you just go back to what you know you 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 talk about the stuff you you have interest in um i i love having random stuff come up that but, but it requires you being curious about the audience wanting to loop them in being aware they're on a wavelength you might not be on yet how can we meet halfway and not just drag you into my weird jokes like what can what can we do that we're missing out on here I think is is a big part of it. So, you you know, there's that thing that, you know, improv coaches and teachers always tell you when you're going into, like, an audition for Tourco or something. Or they say, make the other scene partner look better than you. That's how you get really good at this. Be confident, yes, and all that stuff. Create funny things on stage. But make your goal not to look like a rock star. Make your goal, make your scene partner look good. Make them funny. Uh, which is, you know, when I was accusing you of making me look crazy, I'm sure all you were doing was yes-anding me, and, and, and I knew that. But I think um, that should be a part of your stand-up, wanting to make half of your work be to meet them halfway and, and entertain them. You know, I certainly like to do jokes about weird stuff, stuff that I find interesting, but I want to make it accessible. And I think it should be accessible to as many people as possible. We've got to wrap this up. This has just been so much fun. 
Uh, we always end the show the same way, which is what piece of advice would you give somebody getting into comedy today? <sighs> um, can I qualify it? You can do whatever you want. Uh, always be suspicious of advice, first of all. Advice is usually just someone trying to feel superior to you. So if anyone, including myself, ever gives you advice, the first impulse you should have is, what do they want from me? Uh, <laughs> but after that, yeah, you know, why don't I just ride the, tr the freight train I've been on for the last five minutes? Meet the audience halfway. We all get into this for different reasons. We should always stick by them, and we should always find ways to be our own style or brand or whatever bullshit people get obsessed with. People love to talk about branding these days, both ironically and not. <laughs> Uh, meet the audience. Figure out what they want to laugh about. I'm doing a show tonight for this nerd fest thing, and I can't wait to just do a bunch of Star Wars jokes. But I also can't wait to make fun of nerds. I can't wait to make fun of people who only like Star Wars and figure out what it is that really binds the room together. The room, everybody, and 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 I think uh, you know a lot. Nerd nerdery is a great example of that. Nerdery people always just want to talk about the one thing they like. And how great and superior that is. And they miss out on an opportunity to uh, include a lot, of, a lot of people. Make it inclusive. Uh, so why not be inclusive whenever you can? Dan Delvler, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Dan Telfer. And I loved it that his mom was in the audience and she asked the question, I also want to thank all the good people at the Chicago Comedy Nerd Festival for making this special episode uh, happen. Also, Stage 773 here in Chicago, where we tape the show, uh, they're the people that uh, make us feel so at home uh, and like rock stars. Also, uh, my producer, Dan Schiffmacher, who makes, this, makes me sound so slick and so professional, you wouldn't be hearing my voice without him. Also, for more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes in my Improv Nerd blog, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. Also, follow us on social media. Check us out on Facebook, our Improv Nerd fan page, and like us, because it really helps with our low self-esteem or my low self-esteem. Then follow me at improv underscore nerd, and then go to our wonderful YouTube channel, and that's Improv Nerd Podcast, all one word. We're also lucky enough to be part of Feral Audio, feralaudio.com. They have wonderful, unique, and hilarious podcasts. So go to feralaudio.com. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, the Improv ABC, the A to Z Guide to Becoming an Unstoppable Improviser. Check out the book at improvabc.com. Also, the Hotel Lincoln. And more importantly, you for listening. Without you, this would just be a big waste of time. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. 
Interior happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. (laughs) 